Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Consuls are essential to American foreign relations. Although they may not be as flashy or as powerful as an ambassador like Thomas Jefferson or John Quincy Adams, they're often the go-to people when an American gets in trouble abroad or when a trade deal needs to get done. Consuls operate in cities and towns throughout the world, helping to advance American interests and maintain good relations with their host countries, all while helping you to replace your lost passport. Much has changed about the consular service since the 18th and 19th centuries when a consul could earn fees for his services, such as getting you out of a scrape with the local authorities. But as today's guest demonstrates, consuls were and are the backbone of American diplomacy. Dr. Abby Mullen joins me to discuss her work on American consuls in the early republic and her podcast, Consolation Prize, a show dedicated to telling the stories of these consuls and the wider world in which they lived. Mullen is term assistant professor of history at George Mason University, where she is also one of the key members of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media. As a reminder, be sure to subscribe to Conversations at the Washington Library wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And with that, Let's win a consolation prize with Abby Mullen. What I would imagine that most folks will take away from our conversation today is that you enjoy puns very much. I'll try to rein it in. You try to rein it in. Well, the entire title of your podcast is one big pun. I know. I know. I'm actually quite proud of the title of the podcast, even though. Uh, so, but I have to tell you, though. Um, because we can see Google Analytics, we can see how people get to the podcast mm-hmm. um, via Google. And actually, the most Googled way that people get to our podcast is by Googling Constellation Prize. <laughs> and it's not close. Like, like five times as many people get to us by Googling Constellation Prize. And there is actually a podcast out there called Constellation Prize. And it's like some astrology podcast or something i don't know <laughs> so, so they're looking for divine meeting or at least uh, uh something know. about something about the future <laughs> and then I they're finding they're the finding past. they're finding consolation prize <laughs> which exactly. is a, a which real... is ironic right because <laughs> it is a consolation prize exactly exactly <laughs> all so, right so, there's what... multiple levels of meaning there <laughs> This uh, this is going to get meta real fast. So maybe we'll before we dive even deeper, then you can give our listeners a sense of uh, what Constellation Prize is. Not Constellation Prize. We're not talking about early American astronomy, but Constellation Prize. That would be a cool podcast, though. I would totally listen to that. Uh, so yeah, Constellation Prize is our tagline is it's a podcast about the United States and the world through the eyes of its consuls, and. At first blush, you might think that a podcast about consuls is going to be about diplomatic history, and it is about diplomatic history to some extent, but consuls are at the very, very lowest rung of the diplomatic ladder, and so it's more often than not about things that we wouldn't necessarily think about as being diplomacy. It's not about treaties necessarily, although sometimes it is. It's not about, you know, Uh, banquets with the head of state or anything like that. It's more about how Americans are moving around in the world and what kind of help they need. And sometimes that looks like everything from actually sending the effects of dead sailors back home to their loved ones in the United States, or it can look like getting American sailors out of prison. That happens a lot, actually. Or it can look like picking fights with the local authorities when 
consuls think that their constituents, let's call them, are having their rights denied or diminished. And that is actually a big part of their job. But really, their main job is to keep American trade flowing. And what that looks like could be helping in a legitimate way with keeping trade flowing by, you know, doing paperwork and stuff like that. There's lots of paperwork. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's less legitimate ways of helping. Uh, but and it's also sending back reports to the Secretary of State about what's happening in the various ports that these consuls are in. So it's really about more than just diplomacy. It's about we've had episodes where we've talked about Americans' rights. We've had an episode where we talked about religion. We have an episode coming up in a little bit that we're going to talk about archaeology. I mean, it, it's all over the map. And so there's a lot of different stuff. So consuls are the people that I would go to or the consul is, is the place I would go to if I'm, say, you know, studying abroad in Scotland like I used to back in the before times, uh, before all this happened. And I got into some kind of pickle and I was in Edinburgh and, and I'd had to be like, hey, something's wrong with my passport or um, I'm having trouble with the local authorities or the rugby fans are a little bit out of control and they, you know, smashed a beer glass over my head. Those are the kind of folks I'd go to to say, can you help me out? Yeah, that's exactly right. Today, I think we think of consuls mostly in terms of migration or mm -hmm. immigration, because as you said, that's where you go to like get your passport or figure out your visa problems or whatever. And that's definitely true for the entire history of the consular service, but it's more, it's more than that surprisingly more than that sometimes. So what are the origins of the consular system? Because, you know, in the early Republic, they, under the new constitution, they had to create a government and then there was secretary of state and, you know, the prominent ambassadors to places like Great Britain and France and Spain, you know, the allies of the United States and, and Prussia and Russia as well. But this lower rung certainly gets lost, I think, in that history. At least we don't think about it as much. What, where does this system come from? Yeah, that's a really great question. This system actually predates the United States in that there are consuls in Europe, you know, for centuries before this, really. And so, I mean, you know, there's like consuls in Rome in the, you know, classical period. That's not the kind of consul we're talking about. Um, but the term is the same. And so there, consuls are basically commercial agents. And so if you have a new country that is in desperate, desperate need of money. Well, there's only so many places you can go to get money. And one of those places is overseas. It's trading mm -hmm. with other nations. And so consulship, the, the establishment of consuls actually predates the constitutional government. Within a year of the Articles of Confederation being created in, 18, in 1784, the first American consul is being sent actually to Canton. And that's what we'll talk about in a little bit more. Uh, in the in the immediate future of this yeah, podcast, a little, um, little sneak preview coming. So yes, yeah, so I don't want to don't want to steal my own thunder too much here, but <laughs> um, but Thomas Jefferson in particular is very interested in the consular system. He has seen it. He was in France, you know, and before the constitutional government was formed. So once the constitution is put into place, he starts really pushing hard for consuls to be created, and so. There actually are a number of consuls who get sent out into the world before the official establishment mm -hmm. of the consular service in 1792. We've already talked about one of them, James Morey, who went to Liverpool before 1792 on the urging of Thomas Jefferson, actually, and others. 
but then the the system it works or it is desirable for a couple of reasons one is that as i said already trade is something that seems pretty important to a mm -hmm. nation who is heavily heavily in debt you know you can't necessarily tax your own constituents and the articles of course doesn't really set up a good way to do that so tax isn't really a thing that you can count on to make money and so you need to get that money from somewhere and the somewhere that you can get it from is trade but in order to be able to trade you need to have relationships with these various what are thought of as wealthy places throughout the world and since you no longer have the british empire to sort of be the the opener, the wedge to get you into those places, mm -hmm. it, it's time to start doing some of that work for yourself if you're the United States. And so that's the, the first reason that consuls are more important in some ways than the higher level diplomats like ambassadors or ministers that we think of. But the second reason is that the consular service is comparatively extremely cheap to fund because the government at the beginning when it creates a consular service in 1792, Congress allots almost no money for the <laughs> consular service. So the way they're supposed to make money is by assessing fees for various things that they perform. So that would be things like certifying a cargo, or you can assess a fee for bailing somebody out of jail, which as I said, happens a lot, depending on where you're posted. So there's all these different ways that you can make money. And the only place that at the beginning, the only four ports that are given a salary are the four North African Barbary states. So Tangier, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli are the only four that get a salary. And there's lots of reasons for that, which I can go into if you want. Well, now but... I'm curious. Well, I'm, <laughs> I have two questions. One, how can we historians assess fees for our labor? And then two, you know, why is it that the Barbary states get those uh, particular consulships salaried? Well, as to your first question, I have no idea. I do lots of unpaid labor. And so as to your second question, actually, this is where I first got interested in consuls is mm -hmm. because of these first four Barbary consuls, as I call them, uh, because I studied the first Barbary war. I'm a naval historian by sub-discipline if you want to call it that mm -hmm. and so my my book is about the first barbary war and the thing about this war is that you cannot tell a naval history of the war without including these four consuls and others other consuls and so i actually got really interested in the consular system because of these people and it wasn't until later than it should have been that i realized that these four guys were actually special because they were getting a salary from the United States. And the reason is twofold. One is that three of the four of these states are regencies of the Ottoman Empire or dependencies of the Ottoman Empire, if you want to call them that, very nominally. But the thing about ambassadors or ministers is that you can only send one to the imperial center. So, for instance, there's only one ambassador for the entire British Empire in London, right? Or mm -hmm. there's only one ambassador to Paris for the entire French empire. And the same thing is true for the Ottoman empire. You send your one minister to Constantinople. And at the beginning, Constantinople wasn't really ready to take an American ambassador. And so, no, nor was the United States ready to send one. Right. But they did realize that if they wanted to trade in the Mediterranean, they were going to have to figure out what to do with these Barbary states. And the Barbary states were not closely aligned enough to the Ottoman Empire that it would have even mattered 
-hmm. if they had sent an ambassador to Constantinople because the three that are regencies of the empire are not exactly taking orders from the empire. They just send their tribute, you know, once a year or more frequently as the case may be. And so there was a, a geopolitical strategic reason for putting a consul there. And it was largely, in this case, it was largely diplomatic. Mm -hmm. So where consuls don't necessarily function as diplomats or they don't have a ton of diplomatic power in one sense, in other places in the world, in the Barbary states, they do. And so that gives them a little bit higher status, but also the assumption is that they aren't going to have time to do their usual consular stuff because they're sort of functioning in a quasi-diplomatic role. And also, to be honest, there's not there's just not that much trade mm -hmm. going through these four places, possibly with the exception of Tangier. But there just aren't that many Americans trading in Algiers or Tunis or Tripoli. And so in order for them to be there, ostensibly to do this commercial thing, they're not going to make enough money from the commercial thing to actually live there. And to yeah. be honest, they all moan all the time <laughs> about how the salary is not sufficient to keep them, you know, fed and everything, which is probably true because it was it was like $2,000 a year. So it's not a lot of money for living in a place where you have to furnish a whole household. So it was probably a fair critique, but they do moan about it an awful lot. It seems to be the perpetual complaint of all American ambassadors. I was reading a biography of James Monroe recently, and he was frequently undercompensated, or at least he thought so, but it wasn't helping his cause much when he's buying fine French furniture to ship back to <laughs> exactly. Abermawa County. I'm curious, though, a little bit about, about sort of the, the aha moment when you realize that consuls were actually important to your project. I've got a, a similar kind of experience with my own work and realizing that one thing that I thought was moderately important, actually, I, th I think is much more significant than I first realized. And now I'm sort of reworking my own book around around that particular lens. But when was the moment in your research and in your course of study and in thinking about your project that you sort of thought, well, actually, I need to take a harder look at these guys? That's a good question. I think the thing that everybody knows, if you know anything about the First Barbary War, you know, maybe two things. One is the burning of the USS Philadelphia in February of 1804. And the second thing you know is about William Eaton's march across the desert to the city of Derna, which becomes immortalized in the Marine Hymn as from the halls of Montezuma, which is about the Mexican-American War, to the shores of Tripoli, which is about the First Barbary War. And the shores of Tripoli part, that's, that's William Eaton's march across the desert because he took a very small number of Marines with him. So that's how he gets in there. But William Eaton, before he was taking this journey across the desert, having styled himself General William Eaton without ever actually getting that commission, um, he was a consul. He was the consul in Tunis. He was the first consul in Tunis. And I think people often tell that story of Eaton's march across the desert as though it started in 1805. And it really started in 1801 when he and his fellow consul who got kicked out of Tripoli when war was declared, hatched this scheme to reseat Hamid Karamanli, who is the deposed older brother of the reigning ruler in Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli. And they decide that they're going to basically support a coup, a re-coup, a re-coup, if you will, <laughs> because Hamid was the one who got kicked out during the first coup and they're going to put him back. And so Cathcart is a consul 
and Eaton is a console and they kind of think this this scheme up and they spend four years trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And eventually it actually really matters for the war. And so I think that was probably the moment where I thought, okay, this is not, this is pretty far outside of the strictest definition of what a console ought to be doing. <laughs> so what else are these guys doing that really matters? And the other thing that's really important about consoles is that their relationship with the Navy is very close, not just in this war, but really throughout the 19th century. And that's, so I'm not straying quite as far afield from my standard uh, field of study as it might seem because consuls and the navy uh, have a very sort of symbiotic relationship in some ways mm. because the navy needs the consuls for a lot of reasons first of all anytime a navy a naval vessel takes a prize it goes to a prize court but it almost always goes through the consul first and mm. if you want to make money off that prize somebody has to certify what was on the ship and that's very often the consul um, also, consuls, as I alluded to already, help uh, smooth over local relations in mm -hmm. a way that the Navy is not so good at. Naval officers tend to come in kind of like a bull in a china shop, and very often it's the consul who's left to pick up the diplomatic pieces when they leave or while they're still there. But also the consuls need the Navy because just asserting your rights as a consul or asserting the rights of the people you're supposed to be taking care of doesn't necessarily work. Mm -hmm. um, you can't just be like, no, you cannot do that to an American because I said so. Right. Warships help. Not really work. It does help if you can say, or I will sick my warship on you. <laughs> um, and in Mexico, actually, we talked about this in our first episode during sort of the moment of revolution or attempt to reconquer Mexico by Spain in the 1820s. The American consul there actually writes back to the Secretary of State begging him to send a warship because he thinks that it's not going to go well. And yeah. they didn't really send a warship, but one did try to appear later. It sunk, sadly. But um, <laughs> so there's there is this sort of reciprocal symbiotic relationship between consuls and the Navy. And that's why I think you can't tell the story of the first Barbary War without including both sides. What's the name of your book? And I imagine you're still working on it now. <laughs> uh, yes. So it's it's going to be published by Johns Hopkins University Press probably late next year. Its nice. provisional title is A Difficult Undertaking, Conflict and Cooperation in the First Barbary War, 1801-1805. So you're finishing up that book and that's in the publication process now. So why start a podcast? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> good question. I think there's two reasons. There's the there's the structural reason and the interest reason. So the structural reason is that I am affiliated with the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. Mm -hmm. And the words new media appear in our title. And we haven't really done a lot of audio for a while. The center had a podcast a few years ago, uh, which our director jokes, we got out of the podcasting business just as it started to become popular. Say, yeah. So we're trying to get back in it. Um, but also I'm really attracted to, I guess this is the interest reason, I'm really attracted to the narrative form mm -hmm. that podcasts can take. And I 
I personally find them an extremely compelling way of learning about history. And I think that there's so many more opportunities there. And even though we know that the podcast market is exploding and there's, you know, however, a million, more than a million podcasts or something like that, (laughs) you know, that's true of books too, that there's Mm -hmm. tons of books and yet we still keep writing them. So I don't think a glut in the market is necessarily a reason not to make a podcast. (laughs) But I think one of the things I care a lot about is reaching audiences that wouldn't necessarily pick up a book from a university press and giving historians the chance to get to that audience. And Mm -hmm. I think everyone's at their best when they're talking about their own work because it's interesting to them. Sure. And so sort of our goal with the podcast is to craft a narrative in which we can tell a broader story, but still let historians talk about stuff that they find interesting Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and tell us cool stories. Because I mean, at the end of the day, there are lessons to be learned from consoles. And I think there's a lot of ways in which we can understand the history of the United States better, but we don't talk about every console because not every console did something that's worth telling the story of we pick the ones that are interesting and the ones that we think people want to hear about well exactly and we are we're going to talk about one of those consoles here in a little minute as a way to sort of give a sneak preview to your upcoming episode on the american console in china but one of the things i was curious about and, and sort of picking up on what you were just saying about the way to reach people You've also, I gather, found podcasts very successful in the classroom and and to use those frequently to supplement readings or in in often cases in place of readings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. In addition to hosting a podcast, I do like to talk about podcasts a lot. (laughs) Uh, But I really, uh, this actually started, I was already doing a little bit of a signing of podcasts before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. But after COVID, it really struck me that what my students needed was to hear interesting stories that would compel them to keep listening. And in our, all, all of us have COVID fog brain at the moment. I don't think any of us have come out of that yet, nor are we likely to for some time. Sure. And so the more interesting you can make history for them, the better. And I teach a lot of students that aren't history majors. They're taking my class because it fulfills one of the core requirements. And so many of my students are not coming for the history content. They're coming to check off the box in the IT requirement. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like any way in which I can convince them that history is worth knowing about is good. Yeah. And my students have responded extremely positively across the board. I mean, you know, not everybody podcast isn't their cup of tea but a lot of my students have told me that they really appreciated having hearing from historians in a less intimidating way they find you know articles or books to be very intimidating and if you're not trained in the art of history Mm -hmm. then that's understandable you know if this is your first experience with sort of academic history it can be pretty pretty intense And so I don't view podcasts as, you know, the be all and end all of historical understanding, but I think it's an absolutely fantastic way to make the historical process a little bit less opaque and make it so that instead of having to 
you know, rock climb up a wall in order to get to the understanding. It's more like a, it's more like an on ramp or a jet bridge, you yeah. know. And uh, they also like the variety. So sometimes it's just nice to not have to read stuff. Yeah. And especially, you know, when you're living in a house where there's lots of chaos or whatever, sometimes it's nice just to have something different. And the students have really seemed to appreciate that a lot. And I don't, it's not like 100% podcasts. I do make them read stuff, even yeah, academic yeah. stuff. But I think it helps them to have a little bit of recovery time from some of that more academic stuff. So that's that's why I yeah. do it. And there's lots of good podcasts out there that I assign from. Well, how does it work in the classroom then? Because, you know, when we assign books, or we assign articles, usually a discussion ensues about the merits of the argument, or at least trying to get the students to understand that the the historian is making an argument as well as sort of giving them a grounding in the facts about which this person's writing. Is there a similar process that takes place centered around podcasts in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think there is. Again, for my undergraduate students anyway, it's very rudimentary where I'm not mm -hmm. looking for a historiographical essay or anything. <laughs> Although I have often joked that writing a podcast is like writing a historiographical essay and we can well, that, talk more about that when we get to the process. Well, Maybe that's, we'll talk I mean, about that, that a little yeah. more. So that's true. Um, it's like, but you're not asking them like, all right, give me a detailed explanation of the Republican synthesis. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But one thing I did do that I found really, I think was really successful this semester is I, I had them listen to a podcast and then I told them, and then I gave them a list of primary sources. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me what this primary source is and how it fits into the story you just heard. Oh, that's and great. the students actually responded. That's probably the best response I got the whole mm -hmm. semester, actually the most detailed and they really thought hard about it. So I'm actually actively looking for ways that I can do that in a, a similar vein yeah. in I'm upcoming gonna, semesters. I'm going to steal that idea because that's really smart. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> it was really well, and actually I did it two different times. Once um it was just a podcast about the Seminole Wars, and I gave them uh -huh. sort of just straight up like, you know, here's a letter from Jessup to whoever, or like here's a image of Osceola. And then I did it a second time where I actually gave them a song from the Mexican American War. My class is about war in the Antebellum United States. Mm -hmm. And um so it's not the the line between the podcast and the song. There's all these like parlor songs that get written about the war yeah. in the 1840s. It's the the line between why this song got written and how it fits into the story is not as clear. And that's actually the one where the students mm. really worked hard because they had to read all the lyrics of the song and then think, okay, what part of this story actually is this song talking about or would this song apply to? And that could have been anything from like why did we fight the Mexican-American War to like one of the songs is like about a very specific moment when a guy dies in uh, a battle. And so they did a really, really good job with it. It was, it was great. As just a side note for that, I tend to, if I can possibly help it, only assign podcasts that have transcripts because mm. some of my students don't have the capacity to listen, but also for an assignment like this, they listen to the podcast first, but then when they're trying to put that primary source where it belongs, you don't necessarily want them to have to like scrub through the audio again and again. So having a podcast transcript is incredibly helpful. How does the podcast fit in with your work at the Rosenwag Center? You mentioned the, let me see if I get the title right, 
the Roy Rosenwag Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. So this is actually an unusual project for the center. The center is has a long, long history of doing innovative digital work. Mm-hmm. It's uh, we just celebrated our twenty fifth year last year. Was it last year? I, think, I don't know. Whenever, some <laughs> long time ago, um, in the before times, we celebrated our twenty fifth anniversary somewhat recently. Must yeah. have been last year. You know, the center is built on the premise of democratizing history, thinking about reaching large audiences that aren't historians per se, or things like that, or telling stories that haven't been told in the past, those kinds of things. And so the center is very much interested in doing that kind of digital work. And mm-hmm. there's lots of examples over its 25-year history of how this has been done. But as I mentioned, audio is a relatively minor part or has been a relatively minor part of that story up to this point. And so this has been kind of a pilot project for us, I think mm-hmm. would be a good way to describe it. Everything at the center is grant funded, except for this project. And that's mostly because of we've been able to siphon off some of our postdocs time and a couple of graduate students. And I'm sort of doing that as part of my administrative work for the center. The goal is to get it grant funded at some mm-hmm. point. We're working on that right now, actually. But we envision this as the leading edge of a number of podcast projects mm-hmm. that we'd like to develop. And we'd like to move more into the new media space. Up to this point, we have been in software development. We have done you know, mapping, visualization, lots of visual projects. And so this is kind of a new area for us. We know that it's not new anymore. You know, people do podcasts, that's a thing, Yeah. but it's new for us. And we think that we have the ability to do it really well. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're, we're working towards with Constellation Prize being the first of what we hope to be a number of new audio and then video projects. So unlike did the po- question, it did very, yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, that was great. Um, you know, so unlike this podcast that we're on now, you know, conversations is essentially a conversation and, and there's not a whole lot of moving parts. You know, I, I, before we talked, I sent you a list of bullet points that I thought we might talk about, but Consolation Prize is a scripted series. There's a whole heck of a lot of moving parts. I was wondering if you might demystify the process a little bit, kind of walk us through how you get from an idea to actually executing that idea and getting it out there for the public to hear. Sure. There are a lot of moving pieces. And at the beginning, when we started this process, I really felt strongly that this was the way we should go. And I feel even more strongly about that now than I did before, (laughs) because I really like how all the different pieces contribute to the story. So there are basically, let's say there's four main parts to every podcast and they're not blocks, they're sort of all, they're like Tetris, <laughs> more so than like Legos, maybe. Yeah. Um, so there's there's me, I'm the host, I tell the story, but I don't do it alone. So along with me, we always interview between two and four historians who have much more knowledge about the topic that we're talking about than I have. Mm-hmm. We think that's really important for a couple of reasons. I mentioned already that historians are at their best when they're talking about their own work 
And so we want to give historians the chance to talk about their own work. And especially we want to give historians who don't necessarily have a big platform elsewhere to talk about their own work. So we talk to graduate students, we talk to non-tenure track faculty, we would like to talk to more public historians. Um, we haven't had a tremendous chance to do that just yet, but we're, we're trying. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to help historians get their work out there. And so that's one of the reasons we do the interviews. And the other reason is that, as I said, they have a lot more knowledge than I have. And it's silly for me to try to regurgitate what they have already said more <laughs> excellently somewhere else. So we let them say what they want to say. But we try to tell a story that's not exclusively based on one historian's work. And so this is where, when I say that mm -hmm. writing a podcast script is a little bit like writing a historiographical essay, that's what I mean. Yeah. Because we're not drawing on just one historian. We're drawing on multiple historians. Often, you know, we are talking to between two and four, as I said, but we're drawing on the work of many others. So it's just like doing research for a research paper or a conference paper. And we bring all of that together. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the second piece. So there's the host and there's the, the historian interviews. And then the third piece is primary sources. So we like to hear from the people themselves that we're talking about whenever we can or sources that allude to them. So mm -hmm. we try to use their own writings or voice when we can. We also like to use other people's words about them, like news, we've used newspaper articles, we've used other people writing about them and letters and things like that. And so we get voice actors to do those voices for us. Those are volunteer. So sometimes <laughs> slightly dragooned into doing that by me twisting people's arms. Um, but those I think really add a lot because then you can hear how the person sounds. You know, mm -hmm. you can actually imagine what they might have sounded like. Um, and then the fourth piece is the sound that includes the music and the sound effects. Now it's really hard to do sound effects for a podcast that that's about the 19th century because it's a little bit hard to do the ambient sound from the sure. 19th century. So we have dabbled only in that a little bit. Um, but really, I think the, the thing that ties the whole podcast together is our music. And we do mm. actually have an in-house sort of composer. He, his name is Andrew Cody. He works at Merrimack College in New Hampshire, but he is a good friend of mine and we've collaborated on things in the past and so when i told him about this idea he was like well let's do some music and i'm like okay let's do it so it really does take it to the next level i feel like of, of bringing the story together so that's kind of the four pieces and we start with the idea the the console you know mm -hmm. we find a console that we think does something interesting and we say, okay, but what is it about this console that can tell us something about the broader history of the United States? So, as I said earlier, we don't talk about every console because not every console does interesting things, or some consoles do things that are interesting in and of themselves, but don't necessarily tell us something about the broader history of the United States in a clear and meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So we start with the console, and then we do a bunch of background research, and then we try to find people that we can talk to. Yeah. And sometimes that's challenging. We definitely have usually like six to eight people on our list of people that we want to talk to. And mm -hmm. that's how we get to two to four. Yeah. Process of elimination or availability. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and sometimes it's more often than not, it's just people are like, I'm super busy. This sounds interesting, but I just can't do it right now, which is <laughs> totally, totally understandable. Not, there's no knock on them whatsoever. And, you know, sometimes we can't find contact information for people we want to talk to, that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of reasons why we don't get the people that are the first people that we encounter. But more often than not, at least to me, it seemed like we've always ended up with the right people, mm -hmm. even if they weren't like the top of the list because they weren't the first people we found. They've always been really great. I mean, we've just had some fantastic interviews. And so we start, we know kind of going into those interviews, what we think the story is going to be, but we really do let the interviews drive us. So if I might switch metaphors here from a historiographical essay to a trip into the archives. Yes, please. Kind of like doing archival research in some ways. You know, you go into an archive thinking you know what the story is and you know what you're looking for in some sense or you wouldn't be looking at the collections that you're looking at, right? Like, okay, I know that this guy, Richard Dale, for instance, he has something to tell me mm -hmm. about this thing that I'm trying to say. But once you read the sources, it may be that your perspective totally changes or maybe it changes just a little bit. And so that's how I view these interviews. Sometimes we think we know what the story is going to be. And then after talking to the experts, we realize actually the more interesting story is something else. Yeah. And so we can pivot at that point. And so then from there, we start pulling out the story from all of our different experts talking in conversation with each other, even though they are not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're talking to me, but, but I'm talking to all of them. So, um, and then we, we write the script and then we record, I record my stuff and then put it all together and ship it off to Andrew, our composer. And that's, that's it. But it really hinges on those, those first, research and then historian interviews is really where the where the meat happens well in a lot of ways too it's almost like writing a, a paper it's it's you know thinking totally. about your your question it's going into the archives for evidence it's reading what other people have done but then writing rewriting rewriting some more editing exactly. until until finally you just have to have to let it go <laughs> that's right that's right at some point it has to be done yes we do we suffer from the same problem that every student in history has ever suffered. And that is at some point you have to stop doing the research and just write the paper. Yes. Same thing's true for podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How long does it take from, from the idea, from the inception of the idea through publication? What's the time frame we're talking about here? It varies depending on the episode, but I would say from the time we start doing serious research until release, it could be six to eight weeks or maybe mm -hmm. a little longer i should shout out here i'm not doing this alone and you've got, you got like and, a whole team not just me and andrew even yeah. we have a whole team which is incredibly helpful i absolutely could not do this on my own because i don't have time to write a historiographical essay every three weeks but i have a great great team um so i have a postdoc deep demurly who has done really interesting work and she's actually the producer on the episode we're going to talk 
about in just a second. And then I have uh, two graduate students, Megan Brett, who's a digital history associate at the center, and she's been involved in a ton of center projects. So I'm really happy to have her. She actually was a guest on our second episode. She's one of our experts about James Morey. Oh, nice. And then I have another graduate student, Chris Stinson, who is interested in religion. So he was the producer on our episode four about Alexander Russell Webb, and he will be the producer on our first episode in January about Jerusalem. And then I have an awesome undergraduate uh, work-study student who is actually also producing an episode, our mini holiday episode, which will come out in a few weeks. So they're, they're amazing. I mean, I, it has been just an absolute pleasure to work with them. And it, this would not be possible without them, for sure. Well, yeah, it certainly takes a village. I think you've probably got one of the larger teams of, uh, of the people we know in, this, in our yeah, sort of similar Yeah, I would imagine space. so. It's, it's great. I mean, I don't have much of any of their time. Yeah. <laughs> um, just just but, enough. Yes, but just enough that, and, and I do work them hard. They will, <laughs> they will attest to the fact that I, <laughs> I ask a lot of them, but they do a, an absolutely fantastic job. Well, let's look at some of their hard work and talk about a person named Samuel Shaw. Now, you've got an episode coming out next week that is uh, pretty relevant to the early republic, pretty relevant to Washington's era. But Samuel Shaw is a curious fellow. And we, you know, we don't want to give the whole story away because we, <laughs> we want people to listen to your episode. But absolutely, give us a little bit of the flavor of this guy and what he's up to. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps where we should start is actually something we don't talk a tremendous about in the episode, but it's, it would be interesting for people mm -hmm. who are interested in George Washington. And that is, um, he's often referred to as Major Samuel Shaw. And the reason he's referred to as Major Samuel Shaw is that he was, of course, an American Revolutionary War veteran. Mm -hmm. And he was an aide-de-camp to Henry Knox. And he knew George Washington personally. And so he's very much involved in the Revolutionary War effort. And then when he is done fighting, uh, he has to find something else to do. <laughs> and this is, of course, a problem for, for thousands of people mm -hmm. in the Revolutionary era is, you know, once you have accomplished the goal, once you have gained freedom from the British Empire, well, what now? Yeah. And so he has a pretty unique way of answering that question. To start with, he actually gets involved in sort of the memorialization of the war, which I think is really interesting hmm. because he is a founding member of the Society of the Cincinnati. He's actually the one who drafts the constitution of the society. So he, you know, knows all of these Revolutionary War veterans, very high up veterans, you know, George Washington himself, of course, yeah. is a founding member of the Society of the Cincinnati is kind of his idea. <laughs> so he knows a lot of people in high places, but he is not himself a particularly high placed person. So he doesn't have a lot of money and he needs a job. And so through his connections with the Society of the Cincinnati, as I mentioned before, the first thing that needs to happen is that the United States needs to figure out some way to make money and trade is the way to do it to, for some people. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the big trade that everyone thinks is extremely lucrative, and they're not wrong, is China. Yeah. And so within a year of the conclusion of the war, Samuel Shaw finds himself on a ship called the Empress of China, headed to Canton, which is the only port in China that's able to 
taken foreign traders. And he's on a ship that's owned by another person connected to the Society of the Cincinnati. And he's traveling with yet another person who is a member of the Society of the Cincinnati. So he really is leveraging these connections early in his career. And so as the supercargo, a supercargo is just somebody who takes care of the cargo and sells it when they get to their port. So they're kind of like the the agent for the person who actually owns the ship, I guess might be a good way to describe it. Sure. So he his job is really to start opening the way for more ships to come to China from the United States. And to do that, he has to understand the system and he has to convince the Chinese that they're not British anymore. And all of those things prove pretty challenging. Yeah. When can people learn more and listen to your take on Samuel Shaw's adventures in China? Yeah, absolutely. Um, December 15th is when the episode is released and you can find it at Consolation Prize. That's C-O-N-S-O-L-A-T-I-O-N Prize. <laughs> dot org. Although, as we know, you can get there by searching for Constellation Prize in Google. <laughs> I'd imagine, too, that it's probably on Apple and all those kinds it of things. It is on all of your favorite podcast players, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all that stuff. So what's coming down the pike then? Looking past Samuel Shaw, looking past the Emperor, Empress of China, what's, uh, what's on the horizon? Yeah, so we've got some really great episodes coming up. Um, as I mentioned, we do have a holiday mini episode coming out just a few days after Shaw. <laughs> um, it's about Joel Poinsett. Ah, yeah, okay. So if you are familiar with the Poinsettia, you can learn a little bit more about Joel Poinsett before he became famous for being a flower. So say um, the South, South Carolinians in the crowd are going to love that one. Which is actually me. I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. And so Joel Poinsett is all over my hometown. And that's actually how we're, that's how we're starting the episode, actually. So wait, my wife is from Greenville. (laughs) Really? That's hilarious. Yes, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina, born and bred. Well, we'll have to talk about the little mice sometime, but. (laughs) Yes, the mice on Maine, indeed. (laughs) Um, Yes, good times. So, um. Poinsett's coming up, and then we're taking a little break over the holidays because that's we all need a little break, especially this year out of all years. We need a little break. Amen. Um, and then coming up in the spring, we've got a really cool lineup of shows coming up. I mentioned we're going to be talking about Jerusalem mm-hmm. and Americans' obsession with the Holy Land and with archaeology in the Holy Land uh, through the eyes of a consul named Sela Merrill who was an archaeologist, and he was also the consul in Jerusalem at a time when Americans tried to start a colony in Jerusalem. He was not a fan of the colony. Um, There were some fights. And then we also have, for locals, actually, we are planning an episode about John Singleton Mosby. So if you're from Fairfax or the Fairfax area, you... If you drive around anywhere, you see things like Mosby Woods or Mosby Park or whatever. That's He's a Confederate uh, who's pretty famous in Fairfax for fighting in a battle. And he becomes a consul in Hong Kong after the war, after he repudiates the lost cause. And mm. so there's, there's he's a very complex person. And it's going to be that's going to be a really fun episode, but also a challenging one because he did fight for the Confederacy. And sure. he did he did not personally believe in slavery, but he fought to maintain it. And yet after the war, he repudiates all of that. So it's going to be a challenging episode, actually, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, 
hopefully this is not a harbinger of things to come, but we do have a disaster episode coming up. <laughs> uh, not that we need any more disasters, but um, actually in between Jerusalem and Mosby, we're going to be talking about a volcano. So um, yeah, okay. when we think about volcanoes in history, if you know anything about volcanoes, you think what, like Mount St. Helens or Krakatoa, mm -hmm. but actually the most devastating in terms of loss of life was an eruption in 1902 in Martinique in the Caribbean called Mont Pele. Mm -hmm. And that eruption actually killed the American consul and vice consul. So we're going to wow. talk about disasters and how consuls have dealt with them and or not survived them. Because <laughs> um, that, that happened. That uh, we do actually, there actually is a consul who witnessed the eruption of Krakatoa and we have a pretty cool record of what he saw when Krakatoa erupted. So we might work that in too. <laughs> oh, that's pretty fantastic. So Constellation Prize really does have something for everybody. Yes, absolutely. And I should mention, of course, I haven't said yet that we're doing the Barbary consoles, but we are. That's coming up in the spring because, of course, we have to talk about the Barbary consoles because that's how this whole idea got started. Yeah. And then we do have two episodes at the end of the season where we're actually circling back to Mexico. Our first episode was about Mexico, and we promised in that episode that we would talk about African-Americans experience with consular mm -hmm. um, problems in Mexico. So we're going to be circling back to that as our final episode so for this season. So kind of a a little circle, I guess. Yes. Nice little bow to put on the entire exactly. season. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Abby, I think people are going to be looking forward to it. I've certainly enjoyed our conversation and thanks very much for taking the time to come and talk to us about your work and, but also a consolation prize. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's been a real pleasure and yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what everybody thinks about the episode. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, let's go take up our stations. All right. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>